subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Maddox Lawyers, the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. Welcome to PX39 Today. I'm Jess Noonan, and as always, I'm joined by Peter Jewell. Today, we also have our audio engineer, Zach Wills-Allen, on hand, who will also be helping with the recording and a short, slightly more professional video. Today, we're joined by Tim Vernon. Tim is a landscape architect and the director of CDA Design Group. The practice undertakes a wide range of projects for both government and private sector clients that relies on a collaborative process for stakeholders and specialist consultants to deliver design outcomes. Tim's special interest is in the resolution of design outcomes for the public realm. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you, Jess. And how did you come to be in landscape architecture? I understand you come from a family of architects. Yes, that's right. Well, when I was young, I was exposed to design and construction um, pretty much by osmosis um, through my architect father. And I had two brothers who were aspiring architects as well. So um, when I was, you know, before school, we used to get taken out to construction sites to look at uh, excavations, um, steel reinforcing footings, concrete pours, that type of thing. And in fact, one morning was taken up the tower of the uh, Ballarat Railway Station on a cold morning and uh, I was about 50 metres up in the air climbing up the scaffold, looking at decorative detail of the, um, of the railway station and looking over Ballarat. So uh, that's really how I started. Um, and then I um, saw that there was a course in landscape architecture at RMIT when I finished school. Um, so I enrolled at RMIT in 19... Uh, 83, and um, I saw that as a, um, I guess, a merger, and what attracted me to it was a, it seemed to be a merger of science and, and, and art, and I was, I was no artist and certainly no scientist, but it seemed to be a way to get into that field and, and that endeavour, so um, during the end of that course, I um, did an exchange program at University of Illinois, um, that, was a, that was a great opportunity, and um, did a lot of travel around America. Um, saw some really good cities, you know, New York, Chicago, etc., and some really good national parks, and um, and also went over to Europe. Um, so I got really fueled by the travel experience and and how that inspired um, design. So you grew up in Ballarat, you said. Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And, and Tim, tell us a little bit about the CDA Design Group. Well, CDA um, is a, a practice of uh, is about eight landscape architects, and we um, we provide a design service to both the private sector and government clients. Uh, we work on projects on the fringe of Melbourne, greenfield sites, uh, also infield sort of brownfield sites uh, within metropolitan Melbourne. Um, projects range from um, residential residential estates. Um, we look at um, entry features, entry treatments and branding of, of projects, um, wetlands, constructed wetlands, drainage reserves, um, open space reserves. Um, we look at uh, town squares and, and streetscapes. Um, we do aged care projects, hospitals. Um, um, even Very in- important how landscaping affects people's mood. In, in those sort of places? Uh, definitely. And I think if you can provide opportunities um, for people to express themselves and undertake a lifestyle um, and to, to enjoy themselves, that's really the trick and I guess the satisfaction of design work. In, th- in 30 seconds, how has the profession changed since you started? 
Well, it has changed a lot. And when you cast your mind back to, I mean, I did start in 86 and um, like all of us, there's so many things that have changed. We were doing, I guess, analogue um, you know, drawing on a drawing board. Um, we would do that drawing, complete it via a printer and then um, put it into an envelope and send it off either via courier or to, uh, you know, snail mail as it's now called. Um, until the advent of the fax machine, which which, which occurred after about three or four weeks of me starting um, work in a small single practice. Um, and so when the fax machine came, there was no excuse if a client rang up and said, oh, can you photocopy that section of the plan and send it off to me um, you know, via fax? That's what you had to do. So you then had to sort of be on your toes a bit more. And then obviously with the advent of um, email and uh, you know, web, it's it's now very immediate. So everything's got to be transferred very quickly. Mm. Um, Do you think there's more emphasis on landscape architecture now than there was when you first started? Yes, it definitely is. I think um, in many ways, landscape architecture, although it was well established in America and, and generally overseas, in Australia, it was uh, very much a new profession. Um, it was only just starting to become recognised whereby councils would have, um, or start to have landscape architects on staff that could um, coordinate with the various engineering and other disciplines within the councils, including town planning, of course. Um, so over the years, it's become more of a, a specialist, like a lot of things, more special specialist um, profession. Uh, it's even, there's now urban design, and there's other branches of, of specialisation that um, have become known as well. Tim, can you describe the skill set that's expected of a landscape architect these days? I'm thinking of the plant ID and specification, site grading, site engineering, mm -hmm. it goes on. So what are the sort of hard skills that you need? Well, it's um, first and foremost, it's, it's knowing and understanding a site. And so um, to, to know a site, you know, go out there with a feature and level survey to really understand what the, the lie of the land is. Um, and to know when to call in specialist um, subconsultants or allied consultants such as ecologists or geomorphologists or um, cultural heritage you know, uh, experts. And so to understand the site, to know what other consultants would be required to come up with a comprehensive design response is, is crucial. Um, and then to be able to, um, I guess, translate that information and uh, work collaboratively with a consultant team. So to know what an engineer might be proposing, what the alternatives might be to um, suggest um, other ways of actually achieving the same end result so, in so a way that's more coordinated. When you first come to a site, your eyes are just looking at all different, taking in lots and lots of different things. Yeah, absolutely. And mm. um, it's ideally you, you go to a site a number of times, so you get to see the site under um, you know a flood event. Um, you see it during various times of the day, during different user patterns. So if people are, are wandering through the site at peak hour, that might be different to how they might uh, recreate and use the space in a, on a weekend, uh, might be used for markets or whatever on a weekend. So it, it's, it's important to know uh, the function and the role of that space in the context of the, uh, of the site. And, and say for a nursing home or a time at home, do you spend time in those places and, and just see how people react or... How do you go with that? Um, sometimes if it's, if it's um, an existing facility that needs extending or modifying, yes, we would. Um, if it is a greenfield site, obviously you don't have that same opportunity. But um, that's, yep. Just on the greenfield sites that you mentioned, do you think we've become a little bit too regimented in the way that we do 
um, landscaping in, say, the public squares and the um, the reserves in those PSP areas. You know how now there's basically sort of a recipe for what needs to go in those spaces. How do you find that from a landscape perspective? Is it do you find it as regimented as it is in terms of the infrastructure? It, it is certainly prescriptive to an extent, but I, I, our experience has been that uh, although the PSP might um, prescribe, you know, a regional playground or a, an active space or other criteria, we're able to work within the parameters and still come up with something that, uh, that gives some flexibility and some um, sense of um, individuality about the space so that you don't have, within a large subdivision, you don't have the same... Um, uses and the same um, look and feel. Um, so it must be hard important. to do, Tim. We, you know, with big projects, to have sort of specific precincts that are different. That must be hard. Um, in terms of the the um, active communal open spaces, it's not so hard. But um, it's, it's really then trying to get a thread of um, street corridors that sort of link up and create a, a continuity, or, or create you know a sense of um, precincts. So you might have. Um, different road treatments, um, different ways of, of dealing with um, surface treatments that lead you from one space to another. Mm-hmm. What sources of inspiration and motivation do you have? It's First and foremost, it's probably both the, the natural and the built environment. And um, wherever you look, um, the built environment and the natural environment provide inspiration and, and it might be at a broad level looking at textures and landform but it might also be at a micro level looking at for instance um, bubbles in water or the way the ocean patterns create swirls on the on the surface or cliff formations and geology so there's a number of different insp- uh, forms of inspiration in the built form there's you know textures and uh, forms in in architecture that relate to a street and so drawing from those type of things can um, inspire thinking and then what the narrative is to support the design is is important I think as well. In terms of going back to that point about public spaces I think people um, sometimes assume or people particularly outside the industry would assume that landscape architects are just planting the trees as opposed to thinking about the space more holistically and thinking Mm. about the um, the seating and the pathways Mm. and that sort of thing. Mm. Do you agree with that? Well, I think the the perception certainly is, um, and probably historically has been that, but I think the current crew of um, uh, professionals that we work with and clients, they they realise that life is a little bit more sophisticated in many ways, um, and that in a team environment, um, there is a lot to offer in terms of coordinating um, a a design so that the various technical experts such as the environmental and engineering people um, and the planning and architectural and design people are all talking to each other and, and I think there is a definite role for the landscape architect to take threads of information from all these various disciplines and, and try and coordinate it into a, uh, into a coherent design. That, that must be necessary for smaller spaces but with historical precedents. Do you ever look back to the work of, say, Capability Brown and things like that? I mean, th- th- those gardens were done in the 18th century mm-hmm. and they still passed, you know, passed muster and people find mm-hmm. them attractive. Mm-hmm. Do you reach back into the past sometimes to look for inspiration? Yes, absolutely. I think um, history really does inform, um, in many ways, where we're going. Um, and whether it's Capability Brown or some of the other... Um, incredible work that's done more on a sort of a private estate or for some of the grand kings of, of France. Um, there's also 
some of the work done um, in cities like Paris, where it was obviously under a dictatorship of um, Napoleon, but uh, von Hausmann, I think it was, mm, the was. designer, um, mm. was given almost carte blanche to um, create boulevards going through um, swathes of neighbourhoods to create these grand boulevards and squares. Um, so, and people were displaced, obviously, but um, but yeah, design has has um, come about through a, ver- a variety of, of ways. But um, it, it is inspiring to, to, to each age its art. Yes, yes, mm. that's true. And, and Tim, in, in in your work, you've got to consider many factors like safety, disability access, security, anti-vandal proofing. Mm. I mean, there's a there's a, a lot of things we don't know, or don't mm. see, or don't appreciate. Mm. Fair comment? That is true. And uh, it's almost, you get a sense of design paralysis if you think um, too much about all the various controls and um, requirements. But the fact of life is that people expect to be operating in a reasonably safe um, uh, environment, if you like. And so there is standards in place to try and at least to have the delivery of of a reasonably safe environment, space in which to operate and undertake their daily lives. But um, there is, yeah, there is quite a number of, of things to consider, and we we get as a matter of course we'll have um, either DDA consultants involved on projects, or we'll have um, playground safety auditors or water safety auditors when it comes to wetlands and uh, water features and things like that 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 do require particular um, sign off before they're um, fit for public use. Mm. Just moving on slightly, do you have a career high? A career high. Yeah, I'm still going, um, <laughs> but he's looking for that, Jess. That that <laughs> that trophy project. Well, it's funny, isn't it? I think a lot of designers would concede that the next project is the best project. But we have done some projects that you get gratified by the fact that people are using them, either in the intended way, mm. uh, but also in ways that you might think. Um, were not intended but are equally valid. Yeah, um, definitely. And to really facilitate uh, the end user is is particularly gratifying. And um, so we've done a number of different projects. In fact, I was walking down, <coughs> excuse me, a, a street in, in Carlton, just north of uh, Elgin Street near our office, and we did a linear park, which was an old street, and it was converted to a park. And the pedestrian function still uh, is maintained, but there's a series of pods or nodes for playgrounds and seating areas um, and so when I went past there I saw all, all these mums watching their kids climbing up and down like spiders on a on a big web and kids running around and parents and so it, that was quite gratifying to see what it was and, and what uh, what the um, ultimately became. Uh, Tim when people are surveyed about improving public spaces a common response is plant more trees is this your experience? And secondly, why can't we just plant more trees? Well, you can always plant more trees. I don't, I don't think there's anything particularly sinister about that. But I think um, in terms of spaces, um, we do undertake a lot of work that doesn't require engagement with stakeholders. And um, certainly that might be on the list. But but generally it's, it's um, providing for what their intended use of a particular space might be. And... Um, you know, you might take a, a particular um, communal open space, for instance, that might be used by one cultural group for picnics and loud music, perhaps, and, and other cultural groups it might be throw a frisbee. Um, others, again, it might be just sitting around and relaxing. Um, and unfortunately, in this day and age, we've also got people that are 
um, homeless and they look at these spaces as, as a refuge for, for sleeping. So um, really we need to be mindful of catering for a wide range of uses and, um, um, and making it robust, and, but ultimately flexible for those various uses. Thank you to Song Bowden Planners, who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. And finally, thank you to Salt Traffic and Waste Engineering, who are a highly skilled group of professionals under the direction of the wonderful Joe Garrity. Details also on our website. Tim, there's a, a quote we sometimes use, tell me what you think we are losing and I'll tell you about yourself. What do you think we're losing in city spaces? Well, I think in the in the city, I mean, there's sections of the streets in the CBD of Melbourne, for instance, that are perhaps um, becoming um, overly shaded through taller buildings. Um, perhaps they've got a sense of sameness. They don't have the sort of chaotic experience that you might hope for in a city. If you go to some of the great cities of the world, they're um, truly chaotic. Um, so if there is a way of, of trying to create a degree of diversity through the way a building hits the street. And, um, Are you suggesting less uniform planning regulations? Well, in a, in a <laughs> sense, I think, um, well, I, I completely understand regulations, um, but a good designer should be able to work with um, a design response that does actually benefit not only the site and its frontage and relationship to a street, but also be conscious of its wider context in, in, in a city space if that's the... So that, that gets back to one of our things, playfulness. Yeah. Are we losing playfulness, do you think? I mean, you mentioned sign off of this and sign off of that and tick the box. Are we losing that playfulness in city spaces and, and recreational areas? Well, I think we are in some, in some ways. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the various controls and guidelines are there to protect, um, but it does... It does make you sort of jump at shadows when you're designing, um, but really our role is to try and inspire and um, and, and offer the best we can and, and work with those work with those guidelines so that um, you're really pushing the boundaries a little bit. So, so Tim, I'll give you a common thought, uh, and I'm just quoting here: making sustainable ecological practices the absolute standard, and retiring old practices such as irrigating, fertilising, using non-native plants that eventually damage ecosystems. Now, that seems to me very dogmatic. Is there a chance that eco ecological purism with uh, public spaces will do what modernist architecture did to our city fabric? Um, so, in other words, in this desire to be purist. With are we going to give away too many things from that we like that people like, much the same as why modernism crashed through cities in the fifties mm. and sixties, mm -hmm. and that was a fad that that was the the pure pure ideology at the time. Are we going to do? Are we seeing that with landscape? You can just say no. <laughs> well, I think I think um, at a broad scale, you know, you, you could be dogmatic about um, the trying to trying to use, um, you know, in a non-urban setting to 
to try and um, include indigenous vegetation, improve and enhance the environmental values of a site, um, in, including habitat. I think that's absolutely valid, um, particularly with some of the, the bigger issues we have um, with land use. And so I think that's an absolutely valid proposition. In terms of the urban environment, I think um, things like stormwater capture and reuse, um, and this has come about as much as anything through urban consolidation and, and trying to make sure that um, initiatives such as Water Sensitive Urban Design or WSUD are integrated into um, project proposals so that, you know, whether it's swales or rain gardens or underground filtration tanks, I think they're things that are, are absolutely valid and um, are a positive, positive aspect of, of current design. Where do you get your inspiration for landscape architectural design? Where do you go? Um, I very much, so I have a, a bit of a memory bank, um, like most of us, and um, it's it's also just wandering around streets or looking at a particular site. You look at the site context and see what might relate to what you're trying to do. Um, sometimes you draw on some elements of history or uh, what maybe contemporary design um, is doing at the moment. Um, so there's a variety of sources, but but ultimately it's. Um, nature and, and the built environment and there is tremendous um, um, inspiration to be had from from those sources. Do you do a lot of travel? Not as much as I used to do um, but I intend to do that when I get my last kid through school but uh, um, travel is very inspiring it does fuel um, inspiration and certainly as a designer. Yeah. Tim is it possible to create beautiful spaces whilst both keeping cost and environmental impacts to a minimum, your work must involve compromises all the time. Yes, very much so, Peter. It's um, budget applies to most projects we, we do, um, which can throw up a challenge. Um, so it's really about trying to prioritise the elements to give the core function um, and appearance. So material selection options can come into play to... Um, look at moderating cost impacts, but um, also environmental impacts should um, either be negated or offset. Um, so vegetation removal or um, offset any unnecessary um, or un unavoidable losses, um, water quality improvements, those sort of things. So, One concern of the industry um, is often that landscape architecture is brought in at the end of the project or simply used to screen buildings and you know, greenwash um, buildings. Is that frustrating on your behalf? Yes, it sort of pokes the bear. Um, yeah, it, it, um, definitely. <laughs> when you think that, um, and, you know, the role of a landscape really should, uh, landscape architect should be um, integrated with the whole project design process and um, ideally to be involved at site assessment stage really then throws up the opportunity to ensure that the various other environmental consultants are aware of um, the various issues that might be important and to create a sort of layering process of, of the design so that when the engineering and design stage starts, it's actually a response to the environmental aspects. And then you know you've got a fully um, site responsive design. It's a value add, not a cost. I, I would certainly see that. And we, we can demonstrate 
a number of times how ultimately there has been cost savings as a result of, of, of the work that we do, both in natural systems um, restoration, it might be re erosion control or um, other sort of environmental initiatives, but it also might be in the um, more for formalised um, urban spaces as well. Mm. Now, Tim, you've seen the website Scenic or Not, and we've talked about that. And uh, for listeners, in, in about a month's time, we'll be actually interviewing the researcher who's looking at that program in the UK. Um, with Scenic or Not, people judge landscapes, gardens or public spaces, and they give it a rating. Mm -hmm. That information is then fed into machine learning, mm -hmm. and the machines are now learning to create what is aesthetically pleasing places. So taking a whole lot of data and then, is that scary? I think it is scary if you were to use that and apply that in a, in a broad sense. Um, so it, it creates the potential for something that's um, not, not truly um, responding to the particular needs of an end user. Um, so that, that in itself I think is not ideal. Um, Uh, Tim, are, are public spaces uh, a cross-cultural condition, or put it another way, do different cultural values, um, do different cultures value the same things in public spaces? Well, I think um, different groups might all highly value uh, an open space, but they might look at it and, and use it differently. Um, I mentioned before that some groups might go there to to be in a big group and and you know do louder activities. Other other people might see it as a place to really relax and and um, do not too much. Um, so I think um, ultimately it's about creating a robust space that does create that flexibility for a variety of users. And we've talked mainly about public spaces. Do you get involved in private garden designs? Um, we do, but not often. Um, and when we do. We sometimes are mediated between a husband and wife, um, which oh, you, you know always wins. <laughs> so that's uh, yes, I do. That's that's always interesting. And um, but it can be um, it can be easier than actually dealing with a, a range of different stakeholders on on bigger projects. So you know, there's a certain level of enjoyment in doing a smaller space, and particularly seeing it um, implemented um, in sometimes a shorter time frame mm. than, than a bigger project. Mm. And, and with your designs, are you a formalist or are you more organic with, with curves, et cetera? So Versailles or, or organic, free-flowing, nature-inspired? Very much site-responsive, but um, sometimes you, you, you might um, start to think more in a curvaceous way than um, other times you might be in a more rigid, angular, um, geometric way. But um, we've done projects recently um, on a podium level of an aged care facility where the client was very keen to reinterpret a, a French garden, so we had a very axial um, format um, and design, which seemed to work very well in the space. And um, whereas other times we'll do um, quite organic forms, which seem to sort of relax the the hard edges of the urban urban um, uh, setting. So I think both are, are valid depending on the site. One of those strange Australian things is the nature strip. The collective area involved is massive and there's not much nature in many nature strips. Uh, what uh, are your thoughts? And just before you answer that, Tim, we have many listeners outside Australia, so maybe you can set the context of what is the nature strip? 
Right. Well, the nature strip, um, it seems to me, is the um, generally in a residential hinterland. It's it's um, you know residential street. Um, it's the area between the the curb and the footpath. So. If from the property line to the to the curb, there's a footpath and a nature strip, and it's usually grass. Um, although there's sometimes planting or gravel or some other or derelict objects as well. Um, Old cars. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so um, I would see it as um, potentially. I, I think it does provide some visual relief when you're looking down a street corridor and you see a wide expanse of road pavement. If it was from back of curb to property line is just paved material um, and then a fence line, I think that whole road corridor would be fairly harsh. So I think that the the visual relief you get from even a a narrow strip of grass, um, and you might say on a very perhaps minor effect, it might reduce the heat heat bank effect that we do have in the urban urban environment. So um, I think there's maybe validity in some streets. Um, do, do you think there's opportunities to um, go further with our nature strips and actually landscape them properly? Well, I mean, you could even take that a, an extra step and say, um, if you don't create a trip hazard, and I think I'm, I'm being a def- the defensive comment there, but <laughs> um, assuming you're not creating a trip hazard, I mean, it's even things like um, food production. Yeah, definitely. With urban consolidation and the population uh, that we're, we're dealing with and uh, perhaps the arable land is not as accessible as it used to be, that um, there's possibly options for that type of um, mm. exploration as well. And we're seeing that a lot more, I think, particularly in the inner suburbs of Melbourne. Um, I know around where I live, around the city of Yarra, there's a lot of those uh, vegetable mm-hmm. bins that are being put out on yeah. nature strips and yeah. footpaths for vegetables yes, and fruit, right. which yeah. is fantastic. Bit of guerrilla gardening, I yeah. think it's called, yeah. <laughs> Tim, the, the value of pleasant public spaces, I think, is undervalued um, in, in terms of community well-being and, and public health. And Jess will know all about this since she did a master's in public health. But the, the benefits of just walking in green spaces is tremendously good for mental well-being. Yes, that's right. It is. It gives you um, a sense of maybe connection with nature. It also occurs in in along street corridors that are tree-lined and gives people an opportunity to... I guess ex- so. It's a setting for exercise and um, and just letting your mind run free. I guess so. There's positive, um, both mental and physical benefits. Yeah. A bit of playfulness again, Jess. Mm. Green buildings are um, are fairly common now, I suppose, particularly rooftop gardens and vertical screens and those sorts of things. Um, the lifetime issues around maintenance and resources are not always given due recognition. What What are your thoughts on that? Yes, well, um, with um, green buildings, it's definitely an environmental benefit in doing it. I mean, it improves um, thermal properties of the building, reduces heating and cooling requirements of the occupants. Um, there's even there's a city in um, in Austria, Linz, I think it's called, which any building application over 100 square metres is required to have a green roof. So there is initiatives that um, uh, are mandated in some in some cities, but it's certainly... Um, I think with, once again, urban consolidation, trying to be creative about how you deliver a, a greener outcome, not only for those environmental benefits, but um, just to create a, a more pleasing visual um, environment and, and better um, relationship to adjoining sites. So there is a definite benefit there. Um, but to answer your question in terms of maintenance, um, you know, with a vertical garden, I understand there's 10% of the construction cost needs to be allocated for 
ongoing maintenance in perpetuity. So there is a, there is a cost to it. Um, we've even just completed a project that had a series of, it was a whole elevation, which is a vertical garden. So a series of planters integrated with the structure um, over the length of the building, which the only way to, to access these for maintenance purposes um, is via abseiling. Mm. And so th the... Sounds expensive. It, it, will, it will be. The client is aware of the general costs, um, which will need to be done probably two or three times a year. So there is... Um, you know, it's becoming, um, to achieve certain results, you do need to um, allocate budgets for, for maintenance. Definitely. We'll have technology to solve that problem, Tim, soon. <laughs> so we'll have drones or something like that's, that. That's probably true. Uh, what, what, do you, what have you discovered when you visit old projects? You go back, say, after 10 years and you see a site, a space. Well, you can be sometimes pleasantly surprised how they're actually getting used. And sometimes you can be horrified um, <laughs> and perhaps I'll give you a couple of quick examples but I'm pleasantly surprised perhaps on one project um, a project we did down at Anglesey after a very robust stakeholder engagement process um, and then ultimately the, the project in, in included a marine themed playground which had um, a local artist carving out these timber structures that were things like octopus and sharks and um, uh, stingrays and those type of elements and whales. Um, but the shark took particular interest to a lot of the kids um, and they've named, renamed this park the Shark Park. And they like to <laughs> stop off on the way down the Great Ocean Road to this park. And So when you do go past, you see a lot of kids crawling around it and that's, uh, that's, that's quite gratifying. But there's also projects where you turn up to where you get a shock. Um, we've done, we do a, a fair amount of work that includes some um, project branding or entry treatments for um, projects. And we had one that was... Um, Is it like residential estates and those sort of so things? Sometimes residential estates, mm. sometimes commercial business parks, those type of things. Mm. Uh, but we did have one project that was um, a five and a half metre high rock sculpture, um, which comprised five one-ton rocks stacked one on top of the other. And there was a delicate design process that we had to document um, core drilling, um, of steel rods through these rocks that had to be lowered via crane um, using uh, a structural um, structural grout and so this once this thing was constructed and was signed off by the engineer uh, it was washed down by a gurney and we realized that there was some hairline cracks in the surface of the rocks um, and it wasn't the top rock it was one of the middle rocks so we're all looking at each other without any way of being able to tell whether the, the, the crack was hairline and would stay hairline or whether it had some structural, um, structural sort of impact on the overall um, sculpture. So we had to, via some research, engage a geologist from South Australia to come over with a what looked like a stethoscope, but it was actually a sonar to check whether these rocks, um, these hairline cracks were actually... Uh, structural or not so there was a few sleepless nights but over a period of months the um uh it was found that the a couple of the, the cracks needed to be uh pinned but but others were seen to be um just hairline so that was a bit of a shock but they're the sort of things you contend with mm. now tim we're coming to the end of our interview what would you say to the young tim vernon starting work on his first day i would say um look and observe because what you do um, when you look and observe, you just find out so much. And that's so important. I think travelling would, would help in that. Immerse yourself in different range of projects. 
um, listen and ask questions of Allied um, consultants to find out how they tick. I think that's vital. Uh, critically review everything. Um, take on responsibility to improve the natural and built environment. I think that's that's crucial. Um, but I think liberate yourself from um, and make time to get away from your computer and, and other apps and devices so that you can um, your brain is so full, chock full of information that um, you need time for, for, for reflection um, and, and really ultimately some blue sky thinking, just, just get away from reality a little bit. So I think that's important. And outside of work, how do you relax and unwind? Um, at this time of year, I strap on the work boots and, and split wood to keep the family warm. <laughs> um, just get out in the get out in on my property and, and do a bit of a bit of work and um, get in the ocean, um, catch up with my family and and music and a bit of reading, that sort of thing. Yeah. Tim, thank you very much for a most informative and enjoyable interview. And uh, Jess, thank you, and thanks also to Zach. Thanks, Zach. Thank you, Jess. Thank you, Zach. Thank <laughs> you.